0: From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. This video has been viewed almost 7 million times on Facebook. It's the band One Republic performing live at a private party in Orlando last year. On a screen behind the band flashes a series of videos highlighting the heroism of police officers administering CPR, arresting bad guys, rescuing a drowning dog, And all ending with the message, God bless Blue. A coroner from suburban Chicago recorded the band with his cell phone. He was one of about 2,500 law enforcement officials in the audience. They were in town for a conference. This party was a hot ticket, and it was free.
1: All right, our program is going to begin in just a few more minutes. Please grab a drink from the bar.
0: When Rick Smith takes the stage, he gets a rock star reception, too.
2: This is so cool being up here. I'm going to take a selfie so I can share it with you guys.
0: Smith is the CEO of a company called Axon. He threw the party to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Axon makes body cameras, drones, virtual reality simulators, but it's best known for tasers. Almost every law enforcement agency in the country uses them. Cops seem to love them because their electrical pulses have the power to stop dangerous people in their tracks. But the problem is, tasers don't always do that. The police in this audience probably know that, so Smith levels with them.
2: And we know as our technology has gotten better, you've come to rely on it more and more. And it's really painful for you and for us when it doesn't work, when it doesn't get the job done. And that's what keeps us up at night. And for the last five or six years, we've had a team of people working really hard because we know we need to do better.
0: That's what he said in 2018. But just three years earlier, he was bragging about how well tasers worked.
2: 80 to 95 percent effective in the field.
0: And Exxon has claimed that during testing, its tasers were effective 99, even 100 percent of the time. But police have found that in the field, they don't work nearly that well. It's not that tasers are malfunctioning. That hardly ever happens. But they often fail to subdue suspects. In some police departments, officers say that happens almost half the time. APM reports a team of investigative journalists at American Public Media spent the last year looking at what happens when tasers fail. Their correspondent, Curtis Gilbert, begins by taking us to Burlington, Vermont. And before we get started, we should warn you that this story may be disturbing for some listeners. When Lynn Martin
3: moved to Burlington in 2014, her income was low enough she qualified for public housing. She was lucky to find an apartment right downtown. It was in a four-story brick building built at the turn of the century. It was once a candy factory. The South Square apartments cater to senior citizens and people with disabilities. But Lynn soon discovered she was in the minority there. She was one of the few people on her floor not dealing with major mental health problems.
4: Five of the people had very significant issues, and there were two of us who didn't.
3: Did you know it was going to be like that when you moved in, or was it, did it kind of come as a surprise?
4: <laughs> well, I was, I was a little startled to find it was quite that, that high a density in the population. And by the way, I had no problems with anybody other than Phil. I just want to be very clear about that.
3: Phil Grennan lived right across the hall from Lynn. And he suffered from a host of mental health problems, including paranoia and a disorder related to schizophrenia.
4: You know, he would talk to the walls, and he started at like four or five o'clock in the afternoon, and would quiet finally maybe at eleven o'clock at night, and then it would start up again at like five o'clock in the morning. It would be like, um, "Oh, you people! No, I, I'm not going to do that. Stop bothering me. Stop talking to me." I mean, he, you know, he just talked to the walls.
3: In the winter of 2015, Phil's condition started to get worse. Just about everyone noticed it. His daughter, his psychiatrist, and perhaps most of all, the other people in his building. One day, Lynn was sitting in her apartment when she heard Phil out in the hallway. And this time, it wasn't the walls he was yelling at. It was one of his neighbors. And this next exchange has some pretty offensive language.
5: He
4: was getting onto the elevator. She got off and he just let fly on her. I'll kind of use the language, you can edit it out if you want, but you bitch, you're a retard, blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, he just really let her have it, and this poor woman, you know, had issues of her own. She was just devastated and shaking and and very upset.
3: Lynn reported the incident to the police and the Burlington Housing Authority, which responded by tucking an eviction notice into his doorframe. Phil was 76 years old, he lived in the subsidized apartment complex for 18 years. His medical records show his paranoia often focused on fears of eviction. It was March 2016, barely springtime. The overnight temperatures in Vermont still dip below freezing most nights. Less than a week after he got the eviction notice, Phil was sitting alone in his apartment, yelling at the walls again. But this time, Lynn says, he was making threats.
4: And I heard him say, I'm going to get them. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to get, and he was naming people. I'm going to cut him up. I'm going to gut his stomach. I mean, he was coming out with really very, very alarming stuff. And I said, that's it.
3: In addition to being Phil's neighbor, Lynn is a licensed mental health counselor. So she called the treatment center where Phil was a patient. Lynn knew they would notify the police.
4: And it did cross my mind that I was calling for somebody who was you know, pretty out of the box and threatening people and the police would come with guns. And my, my awareness was that Phil could end up dead that day. I was fully aware of that, that he was the type of person who could end up being shot by the police.
3: Hey Phil, it's Officer Ellen, Burlington Police. Two officers show up at Phil's door, body cameras rolling. They knock a few more times with no response. So they get the key and open his door.
5: Come on, come on. Drop the knife. Drop
3: it! He's standing there with a knife in each hand. One officer draws a gun.
5: Drop the
6: knife. The other, get your taser up,
3: draws a taser.
6: Phil, drop it and talk to us.
3: After nearly two minutes of this, Phil finally speaks.
1: I'm a lawyer. Okay. I'm a psychiatrist. Well, tell me more about that. Well, put down the knife. you dead, you stupid son of a bitch. Put down the knife. Leave me alone! Put down the
5: knife.
7: Leave me alone!
3: Phil isn't a doctor or a lawyer. He'd thought about law school and even took the LSAT after graduating from the University of Vermont, but he ended up getting a master's in education instead. Phil taught at the community college level before his mental illness made holding a job impossible, and he was a stay-at-home dad after that. It's clear he's in the midst of a delusion. Phil steps forward to close the door, and one of the officers fires a taser.
6: No.
3: In order for a taser to work, a lot has to go right. The weapons fire a pair of barbed darts attached to thin wires. Both darts need to strike their target in order for electricity to flow between them. If even one dart misses, nothing happens. Thick or loose-fitting clothing can get in the way of making a complete circuit, too, let alone a slamming door. That's what seemed to knock one of the darts off course. And it wouldn't be the last time. The Burlington Police Department tried to use a taser that night.
8: I was down at the shooting range at the Vermont Police Academy in Pittsburgh when I got a call that we had an emotionally disturbed person barricaded in an apartment on College Street.
3: Brandon Del Pozo was just seven months into his job as Burlington's chief of police. He was 41 at the time. Ivy League-educated and media-savvy. Del Pozo took the job after spending 18 years at the New York Police Department. He'd commanded two precincts there and seen his share of police shootings. He could tell the situation with Phil had the potential to turn deadly. So he jumps in his police cruiser and drives 60 miles north to try to save Phil's life.
8: I was happy to see when I got there that the scene was under control, that they'd roped the door shut and they were taking their time and they were trying to get him to talk so they
3: could negotiate. This isn't one of those stories where the police rush in and the situation spirals out of control in a matter of seconds. Far from it. Phil is alone in his apartment. The rope tied around the doorknob means it's impossible for Phil to burst into the hallway and provoke the cops into shooting him. He can't hurt anyone, except possibly himself. The police have time on their side, so they wait. They knock on his door.
5: They fell. It's Mike. I haven't gone anywhere. We know that you've got a notice or been told that you've been evicted. We have resources that can help you. But I can't help you unless you talk to me.
3: They call his phone more than a dozen times.
5: Hey, Phil, it's Mike. Just give me a call back so we can uh, talk about what's going on. All right? Phil never answers.
3: Never says a word. They don't know if he's still alive in there. Chief Del Pozo wants to see what's going on inside the apartment... But he doesn't want his officers to go in blind.
8: I asked if we had a drill. The police department didn't own a drill. I went home and got a drill. I got a drywall saw. I got the right bits. And we cut a few holes in his uh, apartment wall to put a camera in to see what we could see. So I can see the kitchen, like the table and everything. Yeah, we'll see him. And what we saw was
3: nothing. We just saw empty rooms. So almost four hours after Phil retreats into his apartment, well, steady, guys. Del Pozo decides it's time to go in. Police, come out! They find Phil standing in the shower, like hiding behind the curtain. He still has the knives. He got a knife in his hand. He still says nothing. He just stands there. Step back a little bit. The cops use a device called a pepper ball to try to smoke Phil out of the bathroom. It doesn't work on him. It just throws the eight officers in the apartment into fits of coughing.
5: Hey, we're going to avoid the, pe- the pepper ball from now on. Avoid the
6: pepper ball? Yeah. <coughs> Note to self, never use pepper ball again inside of a closed
8: quarters. It's time to make a new plan. My sergeant says, listen, we um, can definitely get up on him and we have enough staffing here. We have enough equipment. If we could stun him with a taser, we should be able to get in there and to take him into custody. Are so you going to tense up or drop the knife? A little bit of both, I guess.
3: Del Pozo is so confident in the plan, he authorizes his deputy chief, Jan Wright, to hold a press conference on the street below.
7: This housing development right here is uh, made up of a bunch of different
5: people. Um, so
3: Meanwhile, up in the apartment, the cops line up at the bathroom door.
5: All right, let's move forward, guys.
3: Officer Derwin Ellerman stands at the front of the line. In one hand, he holds a shield. In the other, he later tells investigators, is a taser.
6: So I have my taser out at the ready, off safe. Um, Sergeant Tree, push the,
3: push, the, <clears throat> sorry. push the curtain open. Again, Phil says nothing. He stands there clutching his knives and turns his body toward the officers. At this point, Chief Del Pozo says, everything is still under control.
8: The plan stops working the moment they fire the taser.
6: I fired the first cartridge. I think it got a good lockup because I saw him seize up and shaking a little bit, Um, but he didn't drop the knives, and he's screaming the whole time. I'm not sure which hand he used, but he reached down and he pulled the barbs out of himself.
3: As soon as Phil removes one of the barbed darts, he breaks the circuit and electricity stops flowing through his body. Axon executives have portrayed yanking out the darts as unlikely. Here's CEO Rick Smith on cable TV in 2002.
2: It's like uh, take a computer network. Imagine putting that spike of electricity into it. It's going to send everything haywire. We do the same thing inside the human body so the brain can't tell the arms, legs, and muscles what to do. And if you can't move, you can't attack anyone. What's to stop a a perpetrator from breaking those wires off? uh, The 50,000 volts that's going through his body. (laughs)
3: Rick Smith's brother and co-founder, Tom Smith, said something similar when ABC's Bill Weir asked him about it in 2011.
5: Have you ever seen a test subject able to yank these out? No. They can't control their
3: motor You you can't control motor function, right. But Axon's more recent training materials seem to contradict the Smith brothers' past claims. A 2016 PowerPoint presentation created by the company notes people can retain control of their arms and legs, even while receiving a taser shock. Chief Del Pozo says that was clearly the case with Phil Grennan. The tasers
8: hurt him enough to make him really angry and to aggravate his episode, and yet did
3: not hurt him enough to incapacitate him. What happens next unfolds in less than 10 seconds. It takes Officer Ellerman longer than that just to describe it to investigators.
6: He immediately steps out of the tub and his arms are going, the knives are flowing. I don't remember if I said back up, I know someone said, get back, get back, get back. He's moving fast. We did not expect him to move that fast.
3: Out on the street, the deputy chief is still talking to reporters. She's in mid-sentence when the gunshots ring out. The cameras pan up to the open window on the second floor. They can't see it, but Phil is on the floor, dying. Bullet holes in his chest, thigh, groin, and abdomen. He also has six smaller marks on his body, the kind tasers leave behind. Chief Del Pozo says another one of his officers fired one just a moment before the gunshots. By the time we were done with this encounter, unfortunately, the room was just a crisscross mess of taser wires. Phil's story is like hundreds of others all over the country. Police end up shooting someone after their tasers prove ineffective. APM reports found more than 250 cases that follow this same plot line over just a three-year period. Tasers failed to resolve the situation, and then police resorted to firearms. And in more than a hundred of those cases, people became more aggressive after an officer fired a taser at them. Had the tasers been effective, many of those people might still be alive. In some cases, it's obvious why the taser didn't work, because one or both of the electrified darts missed their target. But with many of the shootings, it's much murkier. The darts hit, they just don't do much. And the investigators don't spend much time trying to figure out why. They tend to focus on the bullets that proved fatal, not the tasers that proved ineffective. That was the case with Phil Grennan's death, too. It's a question that gnawed on Phil's niece, Sarah Grennan.
7: It was eating me alive for a while.
3: A little less than two months after Phil died, the Burlington Police Department released videos from the cameras officers wore on their uniforms. But it wasn't until the next year that Sarah could bring herself to look at them.
7: I watched it on the anniversary of his death. Um,
3: Why did you decide to do that?
7: I don't even know what the answer is. I don't even know why I watched it. I guess just to maybe try to figure out why it went so wrong. And that's when she saw
3: how close Phil was when Officer Ellerman used his taser.
7: They were
5: face-to-face.
3: Ellerman was in the bathroom doorway. Phil was in the shower. Sarah started researching tasers, and she discovered it's not enough just for both darts to hit. It also matters how far away the target is. Tasers don't have the same effect on the human body when they're used at too close a range. They still hurt, and sometimes that's enough, but they won't always knock you over. That's because the two taser darts spread apart as they fly. The farther apart they hit the more effective they become.
7: And I think that I had heard that the tasers they were using at the time, you have to be nine feet away.
3: She's right. And the problem is, it's hard for officers to get that kind of distance in a small apartment or even in a scuffle out on the street. The manufacturer, Axon, acknowledges tasers are typically used at close range. And when you look at databases from major police departments that track this stuff, you can see just how close In New York and Fort Worth, Texas, for example, officers report they usually fire their tasers at distances of seven feet or less. They only use them at longer ranges about a quarter of the time. In other words, most of the time, cops don't use tasers at the ranges where they become reliably effective. So how far away was Phil? To find that out, I needed to get into his building... And look at one of the apartments. Are you Hi. Cynthia? Yeah. Hi, Curtis Gilbert. Hi, Curtis. Call me Cindy. Cindy. Okay, I will. Come Thank on you in. so much. Cindy Cullum has lived in this tiny one-bedroom apartment for 18 years. Where, where should we sit down to visit? You sit in Phil's chair.
7: She was probably Phil's best friend. I mean, he'd come down and sit in that chair, and we'd talk, and we had Thanksgiving together every year. And um, we only had stuffing, dressing, because that's all we each liked. He was so appreciative, so thankful for it. He was so dear. He, He would just, I can't say enough about him.
3: I could tell that Phil's death had really affected Cindy, but I wasn't prepared for what she said next.
7: It was so terrible that I, uh, tried to commit suicide four days afterwards and they told me I was in the hospital for three weeks and I'd never done that before or since never
3: Do you remember making a decision to commit suicide? Oh
7: absolutely I wrote everything out for my cousin and for some reason the loss of Phil and what he went through before his death was so traumatic for me I just, I, I couldn't bear up to it. Had you been inside Phil's apartment before? Many times. Is it laid out similar to this, or is it... No, was- it isn't. His, the person who is in his apartment right now is named Steve, and he just moved in there a few months ago. He would let you in in a minute. Could you take me up there and... Oh, sure. Should we go see? Hi, Steve. Hi, Hi, how How are 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 you?
3: Steve Waklawick is 66 and lives with a little dog named Thor.
5: This is Thor.
3: He has no problem showing me his bathroom. He points to a mark on the shower tile he thinks might have been caused by a bullet.
5: This is the interesting thing.
3: Then he lets me take some measurements with my phone, under the watchful eye of Thor. The place is tiny. The whole apartment measures less than 500 square feet. The bathroom is a bit shy of four feet by seven feet. All right, so according to this app on my phone, Phil might have been only three, maybe four feet away from the officer when he tased him and could not have been more than, say, six feet or so away. So I think that could have been a big factor in why the taser didn't work on Phil.
0: We asked Axon to talk to us. They initially agreed, but then canceled the interview. The company didn't respond to our questions about the connection between tasers and fatal shootings by police. They sent us a statement saying research shows tasers are, quote, the most safe and effective, less lethal use of force tool available to law enforcement.
5: After the break, Axon faces lawsuits from police officers. All she knew is her danger didn't work and didn't know why. And frankly, we didn't know why. And then lo and behold, you know, here it was right in front of us. It didn't work because it was designed to be underpowered. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX.
0: From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. The idea of zapping someone with an electrical weapon was once the stuff of science fiction. Set your face around one quarter. I'll leave mine on stun. Ooh, I feel strange. Just stun. You'll be able to think in a minute. But in the mid-70s, it became a reality.
5: Into the debate over whether to make handguns illegal, enter a new space-age weapon that stuns but does not kill the victim. This
0: 1975 ABC News report includes the only recorded interview we could find featuring Jack Cover. He's a Southern California scientist who invented the taser. And we feel that it is a very suitable replacement for the gun, which, as you know, is lethal and is totally inadequate in the hands of the average citizen. Cover said he got the name for the taser, not from Star Trek's phaser, but from Tom Swift. Grandma, I want you to listen to me. I'm going
7: to try and stop him with this. What does it do? I really don't know. It's an experimental electromagnet. Okay, hang on, Tom!
0: Tom Swift was a fictional boy genius who invented all kinds of futuristic devices, And the word TASER is a loose acronym of the book Tom Swift and his Electric Rifle. Today, a single company, Axon, has a monopoly on producing TASERS in the U.S., and most cops carry them. But the problem is, TASERS often don't work the way police expect them to. Today on Reveal, we're looking at why that happens with our colleagues at APM Reports. Correspondent Curtis Gilbert finds out how Axon cornered the TASER market and what's happened since then. Rick Smith was in his early
3: 20s, fresh out of business school, when he decided to go into the electrical weapons business.
2: Hello. I'd like to thank you for purchasing an AirTaser, the intelligent choice for self-defense. I would also like to welcome you into my home. This video is set here because the AirTaser has made my home a safer place. And the purpose of this video is to help you make your home a safer place as well.
3: It was 1994. At the time, another company, called Tasertron, was still selling tasers based on Jack Cover's original design. It owned the patents and had the exclusive right to sell tasers to police departments in the U.S. So AirTaser went after the consumer market.
7: Back off, mister. I mean, right now.
3: This is Ed Scott. I'm in the parking lot of Club Nine with my girlfriend.
5: We have just subdued an attacker with an AirTaser. We're getting the hell out of here.
2: You have just witnessed the future of self-defense, the dark age is
0: over.
3: But it turned out everyday citizens weren't that interested in arming themselves with electrical weapons. As Smith explained at an event in Phoenix a few years ago, by 1998, things were looking grim.
2: We had to cut two-thirds of the company, fire you know, most of the people that worked there, going to, you know, starvation mode.
3: But a whole new market was about to open up for Smith. The patents that were preventing him from selling his tasers to U.S. police were expiring. It could be a huge opportunity. There was just one problem.
2: The early tasers were unreliable and not very effective.
3: When Smith demonstrated the air taser on volunteers, he would hand them a fake knife and tell them to try to fight through the effects of the electricity.
2: We want you to attack the camera.
3: And some of them were able to do it. In order to compete with Tasertron, Smith needed to make a weapon that really worked. His solution was simple. He turned the power up, way up. Smith tripled the amount of electrical charge his tasers put out.
2: This is the Advanced Taser M26.
3: And it passed the attack the camera test. Yeah! Cops loved it. Sales exploded. Smith renamed the company Taser International. And a few years later, he took it public. He boosted the power of the weapons again and bought up what was left of Tasertron. From that point on, Smith had a monopoly. His company became a Wall Street darling. Smith talked about those days on a podcast called Entrepreneurs on Fire.
2: In 2004, we were the top performing stock in the world. It was an amazing run of success. Then January 2005 hit. We got hit with a raft of lawsuits and a federal investigation into the safety of our devices that was absolutely miserable. We weren't sure the company would survive again. We got hit with like 150 lawsuits in less than a year.
3: Most of the lawsuits alleged tasers weren't as safe as the company claimed, that they could even be deadly. The company acknowledged that people had died after receiving taser shocks, but it pointed out they often had dangerous levels of drugs in their systems or some other health problem. Smith told CBS News it wasn't the taser that killed them.
2: In every single case, these people would have died
3: anyway. Smith's company fought every suit, and it almost always won. But he told ABC's Nightline the legal onslaught was getting expensive. Do you spend more on
2: research and development or legal fees? There have been years when uh, litigation budget's been higher than our, our research.
3: So the company softened its claims about the safety of its devices, and Smith began to acknowledge that in rare cases, they could harm the heart.
5: Can you absolutely guarantee that your product would never ever cause cardiac arrest in any person?
2: No, we can't make that guarantee. The best I can tell you is these devices make dangerous
3: situations safer. But Smith's company changed more than its safety claims. It stopped turning up the power. In fact, it went in the opposite direction. In 2009, it released a new line of weapons that put out about half as much power. Finally, the lawsuits began to dry up. At one point in 2011, the company was simultaneously fighting 55 of them. As of its most recent annual report, that number was down to just eight. But even as fewer suits were filed claiming taser shocks were deadly, a new kind of lawsuit started popping up ones that claimed the lower-powered tasers didn't put out enough juice to protect the police. There's one in New Orleans from the family of an officer who was shot and killed after his lower-powered taser was allegedly ineffective. And there's another one from a Houston officer. She says she was injured after her taser failed to subdue a woman who was fighting her. Andy Vickery is the officer's lawyer.
5: All she knew is her taser didn't work and didn't know why, And, and frankly, we didn't know why until... Uh, we got into discovery, and, and then lo and behold, you know, here it was right in front of us. It didn't work because it was designed to be underpowered. The company disputes
3: that. It claims lower power doesn't necessarily mean lower effectiveness, and it says its laboratory testing proves the lower-powered tasers work just as well. But in the real world, that doesn't seem to be the case. In Los Angeles, when an officer pulls the trigger of a taser, it only does the job a little more than half the time. It used to be better than that. Here's what we know. John McMahon is a captain with the LAPD. Without dispute, the rate of ineffectiveness has gone
1: up since roughly about the same time of that transition to
3: the newer model. However, what we don't know is how to interpret the large amounts of data given the endless number of variables that go into that. So APM reports looked at the other variables the department tracks in its Taser database. Things like how the Taser was used, how many times it was used, and the rank of the officer using it. None of those factors explained away the drop in effectiveness. Still, McMahon says a Taser that works about half the time is better than no Taser at all. It provides officers with yet another option that can avoid the use of deadly
1: force and save a life. We would ideally, as an organization, like all our less
3: lethal tools to have um, 100% effectiveness, but we know that's unrealistic. We also looked at taser data from New York and Houston. Those cities saw the same trend as L.A. The department switched to the newer, less powerful tasers, and officers found they weren't stopping people as reliably as the older tasers.
7: That was exactly what we warned about.
3: We showed our data to Julie Tron. She's an attorney with the Bar Association of San Francisco. She wrote a report a couple years ago questioning the effectiveness of the lower-powered tasers. San Francisco is the only major city in North America where the police department doesn't use tasers. But the city is now on the verge of changing that after its leaders spent years studying whether the benefits of tasers outweigh the costs.
7: I think that they should be asked to undertake that work again, uh, particularly in light of your additional research. Because that was the one question we kept raising. You don't even know if this thing works. Why don't we wait and see if it works and how well it works? And what's the answer to that now? Whether or not it works? Yeah. It doesn't work as often as it should.
3: Axon has sold more than 600,000 of the lower-powered models called the X2 and the X26P. And it continues to sell them. But in October, it released its first new taser in five years, one it promises will be the most effective ever.
7: Ready! Alright! Good! Taser, taser, pull the trigger and
5: move! Don't stand still!
3: I went to Fort Worth, Texas, to see it in action. A group of taser instructors runs practice drills in the ballroom of a conference center there. A retired Chicago cop named Mike Partipillo barks orders as they fire at life-size targets bearing the image of a comic book villain. The character is a computer hacker called Iron Rose. He appears in the graphic novel Axon created as part of its marketing campaign for the brand new Taser 7.
2: Okay, threat secured. Weapon safe. Dump those two cartridges.
3: The company calls this Axon Academy Boot Camp. It's part training session, part sales pitch. And there's also some time for questions. Anybody? Carl Johnson. Yes, sir. A taser instructor from a small Texas city called Saginaw asked the first one.
1: I know, I mean, I've seen the taser 7, did the pre course and everything. Um, You talked about the pluses to it. What are some of the issues when it comes to the, I don't want to put the layman's term, but the power issues?
3: He wants to know whether the taser 7 does anything to address what he says are the power issues with the previous generation of tasers the models that put out less electricity. Johnson doesn't mention this, but an officer from his department shot and killed a man a couple years earlier after a lower-powered taser failed to subdue him.
1: We saw the best way I can put it is the volume turned down on the effectiveness of the device no matter where the folks were deployed.
3: The short answer is, The power level in each pulse hasn't changed, but the Taser 7 concentrates that power in shorter, more intense bursts, and it puts out more of those bursts every second. Axon's weapons director, Shane Page, tells Johnson that'll make them more effective.
5: We're just making sure that the electricity that we are delivering is delivered more often in terms of pulses, so not more, but more often and more effectively.
3: Axon has changed something else about the Taser 7, its range. In the past, its tasers were designed to take down someone from across a pretty big room. But to get those long ranges, there was a trade-off. Tasers didn't have as dramatic an effect on people when they were fired up close. The problem is, up close is where cops typically use tasers. So how do you make a taser that works better in closer quarters? Well, remember those little darts that get fired from the taser? One of them flies straight and the other one is angled slightly downward. The darts have to spread at least a foot apart before they hit to reliably stop someone. If the officer fires at too close a range, the darts don't have time to spread out. One way to solve that is to adjust the angle the darts leave the weapon from this... to this... so they spread apart faster. And that's exactly what the new taser does. Axon says it will reliably take down people as close as four feet away, compared to seven or even nine feet for its earlier models. But it turns out this new idea wasn't so new after all. Is it through that door?
1: It is through that door. It is actually a vault.
3: The Bakken Museum in Minneapolis maintains a huge collection of artifacts, all somehow related to both electricity and the human body. The vault is where curator Adrian Fisher keeps all the items that won't fit in the display cases. So we have a lot of electrostatic generators. We have Leiden jars in here. We have early kind of parlor
1: game devices, little static merry-go-rounds, carousels, and things like
3: that. And um, this is the taser. It's not just any taser. It's a TF1, the very first taser ever produced.
1: We acquired it actually in 1975.
3: Uh, We bought it just like any customer would. Fisher wears white gloves as he carefully removes it from the box. The TF1 is made of drab gray plastic. It's part firearm, part flashlight. The light is supposed to help with aiming. And below that, are the square holes where the darts come out. Can I take a look at that? Yes, of course. Is it okay to touch the bag? Yeah, it's in the back, so it's okay to be touched. Otherwise, we use gloves. It turns out that the TF-1 fired its darts at the same angle as Axon's new Taser 7. And tasers with that design were still in production up until 2003. They were made by Tasertron, right up until Axon bought up its only competitor and stopped producing its weapons. Over the years, from time to time, an aspiring competitor would pop up and try to compete with the Taser. Axon's response was always the same. It sued them, and they went out of business. Texas trial lawyer Andy Vickery says that stifled
5: innovation. They hold a monopoly position in the market. That just comes with it a lot of power to control what features you offer and don't, which is a practical matter, means that municipalities and law enforcement agencies and, uh, and even the military don't have a lot of alternatives. And
3: in the meantime, the company has been expanding into other law enforcement business lines. Body cameras, cloud computing, virtual reality, even artificial intelligence. That's where most of Axon's research and development spending has gone in recent years. Not tasers.
0: We asked Axon about the data showing its lower powered tasers were less effective in Houston, LA, and New York. The company didn't directly address those trends in its response, but it said the methodology most US police departments use to track how well tasers work leads to inaccurate conclusions. After the break, we go back to Vermont and hear from the officer who fired his gun after a taser didn't bring down a man barricaded in his apartment.
6: Sort of me watching this guy being tased and walking towards us swinging a knife at us shocked me.
0: That's in a minute on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. It happens all over the country. From a driveway in Washington State...
1: One of the deputies to my right deployed a taser. Basically, all the taser did was basically piss him off. And then he, he started, almost like he was starting to sprint. And so then,
6: like I said, that's when I started shooting.
0: To a wooded area in Northern California...
1: Lay on your stomach! Now! Once I tased him... He said, okay, okay. But it didn't deter or slow him down in the fight at all. If anything, I felt like it just ramped it up. I thought if he hits me a couple more times, I'm gonna go out and you know, I'm not gonna. <laughs> Man, I just really thought of my kids at that point. <sighs> Got my weapon out.
7: Shots fired.
0: These stories follow a similar pattern. They start with police using a taser. It's ineffective, officers resort to firearms, and someone ends up dead. APM Reports, an investigative reporting group based at American Public Media, found more than 250 cases like that all over the country in just a three-year period. We started the show where one of those shootings happened, in Burlington, Vermont. APM Reports correspondent Curtis Gilbert takes us back there now, as the city looks for alternatives to the taser.
6: This is Dennis Gerard with the Vermont State Police. Today's date is March 23rd, 2016. Uh, Present with me is Officer David C. Is it Bowers or Bower? Bowers. Bowers. Obviously, we're involved with the investigation involving
8: the incident uh, that just happened the other
3: night. Uh, Officer Bowers was just 23 when he killed Phil Grennan. He'd been with the Burlington Police Department less than two years. The shooting happened in Phil's apartment at the end of a tense, four-hour standoff. Phil had come at the officers, swinging knives, after a taser failed to subdue him. Bowers estimated he was only four or five feet away when he pulled the trigger. He was terrified, both for his own life and for the other cops in the room. He opened fire, he told investigators, because he knew no one else was in the position to do it in time. As Phil lay dying on the floor, a chemical irritant called pepper ball, also known as O.C., still hung in the air. Bowers watched as his fellow officers turned over Phil's body to give him first aid.
6: Um, at that point, um, I saw what I believed to be one of my shots, um, which was in his upper chest area. Um, I all of a sudden could not breathe. Um, I don't know if there was O.C. in the corner of the room or if um, I, I was just worked up. Um, but I, I was saying out loud, um, I can't breathe.
3: Bowers walked out of the apartment. The he wasn't driveway. physically hurt, but the police chief sent him to the hospital just to be safe.
6: We walked into like the main um, ER section, um, and one of the physician's assistants. And I, they kind of the thing about it, it kind of ticked me off. He was really really lackadaisical about it, and he was like, uh, "Do we know anything about the shooter or anything like that?" And I told him, "I'm the shooter." and Um, He was shocked all of a sudden. He thought it was just some random shooting that had occurred.
3: Other officers came by to check on him. One of them gave him a hug. He wanted to talk to his parents about what happened, but he figured he wasn't supposed to. What with the investigation going on? The only people he felt he could confide in were his lawyer and his union rep. The next night, Bowers told investigators he barely slept. In the morning, he reached out to his ex-girlfriend.
6: I had sent her a text, just like, it was was very eerie to me how he, he just didn't say a word. And that really bothered me.
3: And Bowers told investigators there was something else that bothered him. He couldn't believe it had been so easy for Phil to overcome the effects of the taser.
6: I participated in taser training several weeks ago. I watched people get tased, and immediately after being hit with the probes, um... They would fall to the mat, they would scream in pain, um, and minimal movement was available to them. Um, So to me, watching this guy um, being tased and walking towards us, swinging a knife at us, um, shocked me.
3: It didn't take long for the local prosecutor to conclude Bowers was justified in shooting Phil. Even Phil's daughter agreed with that. But at the press conference announcing that decision, Burlington Police Chief Brandon Del Pozo said this about how the standoff with Phil ended.
8: He's the man we were trying to serve that night by subduing and getting him back on the medicine he needs. And we consider our efforts a failure in this case. We did not uh, come to the conclusions that we strove for.
3: You said something at that press conference, which was that uh, we failed. And I was wondering what you meant by that. So I I had some officers that really took exception
8: to me saying that we failed because they took it personally. Um, It doesn't mean it could have been avoided. It doesn't mean it could have turned out differently. It doesn't mean my cops were liable because they're not. And it definitely doesn't mean that they did anything wrong because they didn't. They acted heroically up until the last minute. But to the extent that our job is to rescue a person in crisis and bring him to help, we did
3: not succeed in doing that. And so, in the aftermath of the shooting, Chief Del Pozo has tried to learn from it, and especially from what happened with the Taser.
8: I learned a lot about Taser since the Phil Grennan incident, some of which surprised me. One of the things I did learn was that they had stepped down the power on the model that we were using for reasons of, you know, perceived hazard and liability. Also, that there was, for a time, advice to shoot people in the back with the Taser, which is another... I think, things that cops find intuitively strange, because you have to have really extenuating circumstances to use force on someone that could be so
3: serious from behind. Axon's research shows that tasers are most effective when applied to the back, because there's more muscle there. And Opozo also learned that tasers are less effective than he'd assumed. He says part of the problem is they're unlike any other tool an officer carries. If you think about the baton, it is just
8: a remarkably simple piece of equipment. If you think about the human hand, it's very complex and fragile, but the cop has excellent control over it and pretty much knows what it can do. The gun is a very old, reliable um, piece of equipment with a known outcome. Pepper spray is literally hot peppers that go in your eyes and irritate your mucous membranes. The taser is this complicated piece of machinery with electricity, and its success is contingent on a lot of different factors of human physiology and luck. It's the most complicated thing a cop has on his or her belt.
3: So the Burlington Police Department went looking for some simpler solutions. The department spent about a quarter million dollars to buy and outfit this truck. They call it the emergency response vehicle. Officer Greg Short says it carries everything the cops here could possibly need in case of a mental health call or a hostage negotiation or any other crisis. I mean, we have
1: robots on here. We have night vision goggles. We have thermal imaging uh, we have breaching tools in here, like what you'd see maybe that the fire department has. Yeah, I mean, this is basically like a rolling Swiss army knife. Kind of, <laughs> um, but this is not your typical like SWAT vehicle, if you will. You're, I'm not gonna open up a panel and you're not gonna see like a missile launcher in here. That's not, that's not what this truck was meant for at all. This truck has tools on it to help us control a situation, uh, a possibly hostile situation, and hopefully
3: deal with that situation and take care of that situation in a non-lethal way Officer Short jumps up on the back of the truck, unlocks a panel, and pulls out an 8-foot-long metal pole with a semicircle on one end, about the size of a man's chest. It's called a Y-bar.
1: Usually one or two officers would be on the end here, and you would literally pin someone with... The, the arms on the end, either up against a wall, on the ground, being able to take them out of the legs, um, you know, being able to kind of, like I said, control them from a distance uh, just as safely for yourself and for them, truly, apprehend them.
3: It's pretty low tech. The truck also carries a couple of old-fashioned fire extinguishers filled with nothing more than pressurized water. Chief Del Pozo says that's the sort of thing that could work against someone with a knife. Someone like Phil. If you spray that at someone's face, they cannot
8: advance towards you. They have to look away or put their hand up in front of their eyes. That and a metal bar shaped like a Y can be the difference between having to shoot someone or not.
3: There are no tasers on the emergency response vehicle, but Burlington police officers still carry them on their belts. Del Pozo wants his officers to have as many options as possible, but the Phil Grennan shooting has changed the way he thinks about tasers.
8: Knowing what I know now, if all things are being equal and there's a man with a knife in a bathroom down the street from this police headquarters, we would not make the same plan. We would not say the best way to end this after hours and hours is to send in a team that will rely on a taser. If you're using tasers as part of a planned operation, like a barricaded person, a person in crisis, if you're using it to conclude a stable situation, you better have a backup plan because there's a good chance it's not going to work and you'll need
0: to do something else. Exxon says it's trying to improve its tasers. In October of last year, it released the Taser 7 that Curtis talked about. The company says the weapon will work better in close quarters. But the change comes too late for Phil Grennan and Officer David Bowers. And the weapons that don't work as well at close range, the ones that police departments are finding to be less effective, they're still for sale. Last year, Exxon shipped more than 130,000 of them. Thanks to Curtis Gilbert, who reported and produced today's show. It was edited by Catherine Winter. They had help from their colleagues at APM Reports, Angela Caputo, Jeff Hing, Dave Mann, Nikki Pedersen, and Alex Smith, along with Editor-in-Chief Chris Worthington. We also got production help from Reveals Michael Montgomery, Caitlin Benz, and data reporter Melissa Lewis. Thanks also to Vermont Public Radio and to reporter Joey Roulette in Orlando. Our production manager is Najib Amini. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. Our CEO is Chris Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.